welcome to Thinking Outside the Vault. I'm your host, Zach Garver. If it's possible to be bad at getting a haircut, then I am. It's not that I dislike getting my haircut. It's just that I'm terrible at scheduling the appointment and keeping it. I muddled through for years getting $30 haircuts that were passable. Until one day it went wrong. I had recently moved to a new town and visited the barbershop franchise I'd grown to trust. Maybe the stylist was just having a rough day. Maybe I gave poor instruction. Whatever it was, I went home pretty bummed out. As a result, I avoided getting a haircut even more than usual. It was so bad, and you're gonna laugh, that I would wait to get a haircut until I flew back to Austin, Texas from Denver and could visit the place that I liked. It's silly when you think about it. I hated the idea of getting a bad haircut, but I was totally content to walk around looking like a hat-loving Sasquatch. What was the worst that could happen? Ultimately, it came down to risk. Was the risk of doing something new that much higher than the misery of the status quo? No, it wasn't. Many community financial institutions face a similar dilemma when it comes to data strategy. You can keep everything walled in, locked down, barbed wired over, never exploring new partnerships or innovating on your core services. Or you can open the door to new opportunities. I don't want to minimize the risks, they're real. It's just that the risks of taking a more open data strategy aren't that much higher than what you're doing now. And the benefits, well, sky's the limit. And that's what Kasasa's Chief Technology Officer, Pradeep Adhichiria, is going to talk to us about today. And we'll be joined by my co-host and Kasasa's Head of Communications, Kirsten Longnecker. I hope you enjoy. Cool. Um, Pradeep Adhichiria, if I said that right, and, and Kirsten Longnecker, thank you guys so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about data strategy. It's kind of the broad topic that we're diving into today, and I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff here for us. So uh, I'd love, uh, Pradeep, if you would just start with telling us a little, telling listeners a little bit about what you do at Kasasa. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, so my name is Pradeep Itticharya. I'm the Chief Technology Officer here at Kasasa. And I manage uh, all our technology teams and all our product development. So anything we build, um, anything we run, so our infrastructure. I also manage our analytics and our data teams. And uh, it's been one of the most uh, exciting uh, areas that we've been working on over the last uh, four to five years. So uh, very excited to talk about that. Okay, great. And then my, my co-host is Kirsten Longnecker. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about what you do at Kasasa? Absolutely. So I'm Kirsten, as Zach said, and head of communications. I look for the topics and the stories that make the most sense for our listeners, which is community financial leaders like you. All right, great. Well, so one of the things I want to start with um, is just kind of some setting the stage here for the, the different types of institutions who might be listening to this and might be examining their data strategy. Um, you know, Pradeep, we talked a little bit about this ahead of time, but would, would you mind describing kind of those two types of institutions, broad categories? Uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, if you think about most uh, institutions, uh, uh, there is there there is a group of institutions that focuses on its uh, 
on its core uh, banking services and and capabilities, and therefore focus on on uh, on the systems that they need to to run those core banking products and services, on uh, basically kind of. Uh, Trying to make sure that everything they need is 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 in the institution. They may work with some partners, but they're really trying to do a lot of it uh, in house uh, with the capabilities they have. And then there are institutions that um, that actually want to leverage um, capabilities of partners um, in addition to the capabilities they have built themselves, both around uh, the co banking systems that they run uh, to provide the services for their uh, for their customers. But also to kind of leverage what our partners are doing in areas such as data, uh, you know, data, uh, data-driven dr- marketing, uh, and and analytics. And so, um, what we're seeing is that we're seeing uh, while there is this two kind of these two kinds of institutions, we're seeing that a lot more institutions now are are really seeing the the value that 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 a strong data strategy, both organic and inorganic, can bring to their uh, to the institutions, and then in turn help them provide better products and services to their consumers. So we're seeing some of those those two groups kind of morphing a little bit, but those would be the kind of the primary two, uh, uh, two categories in my mind. Okay. What do you, so part of this episode in particular is part of a bigger conversation we've been having on the podcast. Um, I spoke with John Wapsh, our chief innovation op- officer, and he was really emphasizing that this Getting your hands wrapped, getting your arms wrapped around your data is not a negotiable. It's something that institutions really have to take seriously if they want to be, you know, successful in the next five, ten years. Um, and then we've got another episode with uh, Amy Gilliland Acosta, our uh, chief financial officer, when she was talking about like looking at your back office systems and kind of mapping that and and getting a little more to the nitty gritty of how you might get your arms wrapped around your data, right? And then in this episode. I'm hoping to talk, you know, really dive into that data strategy idea, right? Like, how do you think about your data? And then how does that affect your decision making um, for, you know, other things? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, so one of the things that I always kind of uh, really like to think about when I think about data and for data to be kind of actionable and useful is to really think about data as a product, right? Uh, the, the challenge, uh, historically, what most... Uh, uh, companies, institutions have done is they have looked at data as 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 a as a utility, as something that you need to be able to kind of uh, you know probably do some historical reporting uh, to answer questions like what has happened in the past, right? And while that's fine and that's useful, to really maximize the value of data, you really need to think about data like any other product that you have in your organization, right? So so what does that mean? It means you know when you think about something as a product you always focus on a couple of things. One is, what are some of the use cases or the, the business value that we're going to de- derive by providing this product or consuming this product? What kind of resources do we need to put in here? How do we think about you know, business value, both financially, but also in terms of just things that are enabled as a result of that, that capability being made available? So you really kind of formalize the way you think about that capability. And that's what product-centric thinking brings to the table. And that's why organizations and institutions that have looked at data uh, kind of as, as a product capability have really kind of uh, taken it to the next level versus maybe someone who just looks at data as, as something required for you know, historical reporting. And I think that's where uh, we're seeing a big uh, uh, jump in, in a lot of our institutions that we work with you know, as they kind of transition from that historical reporting uh, centric uh, view of data 
to more of a predictive modeling, predictive analytics uh, driven view of, of data. And that's where that maturity is coming in. And that's where really a data strategy comes into play. So Pradeep, what are some tactical, practical ways that somebody could say, like, I understand you're saying, what are the use cases? What are the resources? Right. What are the business capabilities that are enabled? What are the practical ways that somebody can move themselves from this reporting viewpoint to a predictive right. viewpoint? Right. So, so that's a, that's a that's a great question, right? So let's 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 take something that our institutions uh, 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 will will really understand. So, uh, if you if you think about um, a report, since uh, you know, uh, since you start off with historical reporting, if you think about a report that is giving you a list of all accounts that have opened in the last um, uh, last one month, well, you know, you could get that report quite easily from your from your uh, co banking system. And, and that report will give you some meaningful information about uh, the number of accounts that were opened and who, what those accounts were. And that, that is useful to some degree. But the, 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 the challenge we have at that point is, while that has been a useful exercise, it hasn't really driven in any, any business intelligence for you, right? It has told you uh, you have a certain number of accounts open, but, but you don't know why those accounts opened. Um, and so uh, kind of if you really want to do any kind of ad hoc analysis, which is kind of the next step, uh, in, in the progression from report, uh, historical reporting, uh, then what you need to do is you really need to look at your data and say, okay, I know the accounts are opened. However, I need to really understand what data I, I should have in place to really understand uh, what was the reason for these accounts to open. And that starts opening up use cases uh, that otherwise you probably would not have thought about because you were just focused on getting a report of accounts that opened. And so that kind of data-driven centric kind of view of how you think about data is, then you start thinking about use cases that are extending the value that that data brings to you. And, uh, you know, now you may not want to stop just there. You may say, okay, I, well, I, now I know why these accounts opened, but what I'd really like to know is if I, you know, it, it, let's say the accounts opened because you were doing a certain kind of a marketing activity. Now, what you really want to know is, hey, what's going to happen next uh, if I keep doing that? If I keep doing that marketing activity, so what you're really trying to get to is that what's going to happen next, or you know what's the best that can happen, what's the best outcome I can get from 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 what you know from this marketing from this data that I have that shows me a list of accounts that are open. And that's when you start getting into predictive modeling. So when you start thinking about this kind of progression about how data can be used, it really broadens your 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 perspective on how and what you can do with that data. If you stick with the historical reporting view of of the world then you will stop at that initial report. And if you think about it, especially in banking, uh, uh, a lot of our uh, output that we share, whether it's with the auditors, whether it's with the regulatory agencies, is kind of historical reporting, you know, what happened. And while that's very useful, uh, a lot of institutions have stopped at that. And I think that's where we believe there's a strong benefit of having a formal data strategy because it really starts getting you to think uh, in, these, uh, in this kind of this ad hoc analysis paradigm or this predictive uh, modeling uh, paradigm. That's really helpful. Um, so you mentioned something about organic and inorganic data, uh, and that, that really perked my curiosity because I'm even having a little bit of trouble imagining what the differences between those would be and, and how that's important. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, if you think about uh, an institution, uh, there is, there is first-party data, data that actually they have generated, uh, you know, uh, again, an account holder came into the branch, opened up an account, 
and that data is now that account holder data is now sitting in in their um, in their uh, systems in their core banking systems. And so when I think about organic uh, data, uh, I'm thinking about data that that the institution has uh, has created uh, has ownership of, um, and uh, but the, the challenge with that is that while that data is very useful, uh, you need additional data to really kind of expand uh, some of these use cases we just talked about. For example, the example, you know, the, the, what I talked about early on, if you're doing a certain sort of marketing, well, you need to, you need to kind of uh, append certain other data to just the account holders that you have to kind of make it actionable, to make it meaningful. So when I think about inorganic data, I'm thinking about second and third party data sources that you could, uh, that you could bring into your organization to really uh, expand the number of use cases that that you can then tackle with the data strategy. Does that always okay. require somebody else to be involved? Uh, you know, yes and no, right? So, so if if there are obviously some partners that 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 specialize in in um, in certain kinds of data, uh, for example, uh, if you wanted to work with uh, you know a provider of uh, uh, you know, marketing data that is, uh, let's say, a list of some kind or prospect list. If you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to acquire new customers, there are companies that specialize in that. Now, uh, the reason I say yes and no is because there's also some inorganic data that you can actually enable for yourself. Uh, for example, uh, you have a website and uh, you have uh, people visiting that website. Now, um, uh, you know, through some technology, you know, it is, doesn't come for free. But in terms, of if you if you turned on certain capabilities on that, in terms of tracking, you could generate some new data. Uh, you know, around people visiting your website, and then you can leverage that data. So, uh, you know, the best data strategies that that we have seen uh, are really kind of combine uh, organic data capabilities with uh, you know very uh, specific inorganic data sources to provide uh, you know the business value that 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 companies are looking for. Well, when I'm hearing that, I would immediately putting myself in the, you know, shoes of a financial institution leader, be a little afraid of like, what does inviting in second and third party, you know, data appendages, um, does that invite more um, uh, investigation or closer look at my compliance? Does it put me at any greater risk? Or um, does it not broaden the risk, but make the rewards even more, you know, put more possibility to um, your whole data strategy? Uh, that, that's a great question. And, and, and that's a fair concern that, that, uh, that a leader may have. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is uh, a lot of data providers that, that work with financial, uh, in financial services industry, uh, that work with financial institutions uh, are, 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 are large companies that are, that are, uh, that uh, are you know they, they have a, a lot of due diligence done on them. Uh, they get audited, and like any good institution, your vendor management systems have to be rock solid. So if you're working with a third-party vendor, you absolutely have to take them through the rigors of your vendor management system. Which means uh, you know in terms of due diligence, getting uh, getting all the audit information you need, uh, you know, and, and to satisfy your vendor management requirements. Uh, you know, some of the largest institutions in the world, including some uh, many, many community financial institutions that that, that we work with, uh, have leveraged uh, this data uh, and have have been able to absorb uh, the, the the perceived risk of of working with a third party vendor and balance it against the reward that that these this data opens up in terms of new use cases. 
you know, Kasasa as a vendor uh, uh, also works with these third parties. We uh, we we take uh, vendor management very very seriously, and and we follow take them to the same rigor that 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 our institutions take us through. So there is a, a balanced way of doing this uh, without uh, opening up the financial institution to any additional risk. Okay, that makes sense. I want to. I want to drill down a little bit with this next question. Um, I'm not an expert in, in banking, but I'm you know learning everything I can. And I hear a lot of talk about core providers and the experience of working with a core provider. Um, uh, for instance, on one of the recent roundtables we had, there was some expressed concern about how the, the more integrated you get with your core, like say if they offer different products and services and you continue to adopt those and integrate them, that it, it can be really hard to leave. Like, you, you know, you're, you're just too interwoven with the core. Um, and then also it sounds like, you know, with a number of core providers, there's a lot of fragmentation and just basic data standards. Um, but how do you, let's, let's say that an institution leader is, is enmeshed in that, right? They're, they're really, really woven in together with a core provider, but they're maybe not happy about that experience. Well, what should they do about that? I mean, and that is that is a big question, right? <laughs> because, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was a softball for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, 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 core banking systems obviously play a very important role in 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 supporting the primary business of the financial institution. So, uh, putting that on the table, they'll do a lot for a financial institution in terms of the capabilities that they enable. Um, uh, traditionally, uh, core banking systems have been pretty closed uh, to. Uh, uh, you know, to um, uh, working with uh, with partners uh, to enable new capabilities, uh, they have taken an approach of uh, of uh, build uh, new capabilities or potentially acquire new capabilities. But it's it's typically been uh, a closed loop system, and as a result, uh, uh, these are pretty large projects uh, to implement and also very large projects to convert over to a new core. And that's why. If you talk to most uh, leaders at financial institutions, they'll tell you that a co-conversion feels like an open heart surgery while you're, you know, doing a five mile run. And so, uh, <laughs> oh, and so, uh, so you know, with that, with that backdrop of, of, of kind of just the scope of these systems, uh, I think what has changed, uh, and and uh, Kasasa is extremely grateful for that because we have been able to then add value to our financial institutions. What has changed over the last couple of years is. Uh, co-banking systems are, are are getting a little more open, uh, some more than others, uh, of working with third-party uh, vendors, uh, especially when the third-party vendors are able to provide capabilities that the core is not able to provide or doesn't focus on. Um, but what's also happening is uh, uh, agnostic of the core relationship or anything that the core has to do, uh, technology has evolved. Uh, and so now data... Uh, is is something that really data knows no, no you know, knows no boundaries. It doesn't you know once you have generated data, regardless of what system generated data, there are standards now for uh, data exchange and integrations. Um, and so uh, and those standards are not bound by uh, uh, you know uh, what the original uh, source system was. Now in some cases there is licensing considerations and and commercial considerations, but uh, Overall, technology has made it easier over the last, uh, you know, uh, almost the last decade, uh, where data integration and data exchange have become more seamless. Uh, it's not free, but it is. It has become easier. So what we now see is we see uh, 
the conversation going something like this, you know, when, when, a, when, a, when a financial institution leader wants to uh, enable new capabilities, uh, let's take, for example, um, you know, new marketing capabilities, uh, which are data driven, uh, instead of uh, thinking about it as, well, hang on, I can't do this because my core doesn't either provide that data or, uh, or won't work with, uh, you know, XYZ vendor, uh, their their conversations now more are more around the lines of what can the vendor that I want to work with do for me? Uh, can they enable some of this data integration that that I have struggled with? Uh, and so they're really leaning a little bit more on their vendor partners uh, to to kind of drive this, uh, uh, and and not getting handicapped just by by, by a core provider. Uh, and that said, like you know, there, there's also been a very positive change over the last couple of years. We'd like it to be at a faster pace. Uh, as as vendors in this industry, but cores have mm-hmm. have been a little more open to now uh, working with partners. So I'd like to take that from you know the this kind of external infrastructure to an internal infrastructure. Um, I love this concept of data knowing no boundaries, and that this like tech enabled transfer of knowledge and expansion of this conversation. It harkens back to what you said at the beginning. Like it kind of is having curiosity about your data, not just looking at this historical reporting, but um, extending the value by asking more and more questions. So what does one do um, if you don't, let's say you uh, don't have a chief technology officer or a chief information officer, and you perhaps are the leader who wears most of these hats. Maybe you wear the marketing hat and the technology hat and you outsource some of those things, but not all of them. Um, where do you begin? Right, right. That, that, that's a great question. And, and you know, that, that is also a reality, right? So, the, you know, most of the institutions we work with, work with may not have a large technology team uh, or an IT team. So that is absolutely the case for most of uh, most community financial institutions. And so really the way I look at it, uh, you know, even though I'm a technology uh, leader, the way I look at it is it has nothing to do with technology. It should never be a technology first uh, approach uh, to to. to to uh, you know, how do I get the maximum value from from data? I think really the first question to ask is is what am I trying to achieve for my business? What are the business questions that I'm trying to answer, uh, and and what is it that I know today? But if I knew tomorrow, I could have just so much more value being delivered to my my customers. And so, uh, if you take that business first, uh, business value first approach. Uh, and, and you know, most leaders, you 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 may not have a CTO or or a, or a or a CIO in your in your financial institution, but you absolutely will have the CEO, a CFO, and and, and a CMO who who are who understand the customer, who uh, who know what they need to answer to be able to be more effective. And once they define those questions and those business problems and those challenges, I think you know, in terms of who actually executes on that, uh, on that, on that, uh, you know, work to kind of get that answer through, through technology enablement. I think that's where, again, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, what I've seen in, happening in the industry is uh, institutions are, you know, as their vendor management becomes stronger and as they focus more on, on rigor around who they work with. Uh, and as, uh, you know, as regulation, as uh, the industry gets more open to kind of actually working with partners, what I've seen happening is that, Everything is not a build, uh, build uh, decision. Everybody's not trying to build everything in house. They're trying to work with the best of breed partners, and I think uh, that's a big change uh, that we have seen uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, it doesn't mean there isn't a lot of rigor around who they work with and around security and around uh, 
around due diligence. Uh, all that is absolutely on the table. It's double, you know, it's probably has doubled up now with, with so much more data being exchanged. So now there's a lot more focus on, um, on security and compliance. Uh, but, but what we're seeing is that those capabilities are now being enabled through partnerships versus just building things in-house. That said, we also see some larger institutions that may then, once they've defined that business problem, you know, work with, work with consultants, bring people in, uh, uh, treat them as projects. Um, uh, so we've seen a combination of both, but I think we're seeing a lot more institutions now leaning towards working with partners uh, who have done it uh, before for other institutions uh, or in the industry. Uh, have solved similar problems. And so that's where I think we see uh, the industry moving as a whole. And this is not just with community financial institutions. We see this uh, even with some of the largest uh, financial institutions uh, in the country. There is a lot more partnerships now. We're going to take a quick break. You know what separates a good party from a boring one? Aside from the quality of the cheese dip and the presence of a hot tub. A good conversation. And that's what the Kasasa Exchange Roundtables are all about. No, no, not hot tubs. Conversations. Gathering community, bank, and credit union leaders like you in one place where you can talk about the stuff that matters to you. Each roundtable happens over WebEx and is limited to a dozen or so of your peers. We host the event and bring some relevant research to kick things off. From there, it's your space to share your victories, mistakes, and lessons learned along the way. Afterward, we send you a PDF recap of the highlights. Roundtables are free to participate in, and you can sign up for the next one at www.kasasa.com backslash exchange. You can also look for a link in the show notes. Oh, that's really exciting. Oh, I'm wondering if you have any specific examples. You can genericize the situation. But uh, right. somebody who used this business first approach, you know, asking what are the business questions I'm trying to answer and then got a surprising result. And did that business intelligent help them pivot in a way that was unexpected for them? Right, right. So, so you know, for example, uh, without getting into the specifics of the financial institution, you know, we, some of the institutions we, one of the institutions uh, we have worked with, Kasasa has worked with, uh, you know, was trying to really understand um, uh, why certain branches were performing better than the others. And, uh, you know, on, on the face of it, and so, so the, 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 their first question was, listen, we, we've got to have a branch strategy. Uh, where do we want to, which branches do we want to keep uh, open? Which ones do we want to move? Uh, and, uh, but just looking at, um, just looking at those swings um, wasn't giving us the, the whole picture about why certain branches were, uh, were performing uh, better than others. And so now, um, Without doing some kind of true demographic uh, analysis of the DMAs, the zip codes that that these branches served, uh, they were just guessing. And I think working with with us as a partner and as us kind of just analyzing uh, some of the geographies those branches were in, uh, and and the sh uh, deposit share they had in those regions, we you know we came to some conclusions for them in terms of concentration of deposits, the fact that maybe some markets were fairly saturated. And, and so that kind of insight, uh, while it sounds simple after the fact, uh, is is not something that is is easily available to a community financial institution, and and that's where you know partners like us and others uh, you know bring that value in because you know we do that at scale, we do that as a service, and so we have spent a lot of time and effort really analyzing those kinds of questions, and then uh, we bring it to, you know bring those answers to bear for institutions that may have those. So 
uh, that's just one example. There's so many examples that that, that we uh, run in every day. We you know we consult uh, across our products and, and marketing and data, and so there are many many different examples. But uh, uh, you know that that'd be one of them. That's a great one. That's that's really interesting to hear. I'm curious. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the you know vendor management and and the rigor there. Um, it, it strikes me that the one challenge is that institutions may face is the the attitude and aptitude, shall we say, of examiners, right? Their ability to look at these fintech integrations or these, you know, kind of cutting edge technologies and and fit it into their framework, right? The examiner has to figure out how this new thing fits into the regulations or the rules that are written. Um, Are are you seeing that happen? Are you seeing them change their attitude or is, is it just a lot of friction, a lot of resistance? Uh, I, I think uh, you know again. I mean, it's 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 uh, there is some friction for sure. That would be I uh, would be uh, wouldn't be it wouldn't be accurate to say that you know they they're completely embracing some of the changes. But I'm also seeing you know the thing with risk is uh, if you think about risk, uh, risk is is not not always tied to uh, you know a system or technology or a vendor. It, it risk is defined as uh, you know. Uh, what is the impact that, that what are the chances something's going to happen and and what impact will that 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 outcome have on, on on the business and so when you think about like um uh you know data data risk or data security risk well you know the risk hasn't changed much in terms of whether that data was being managed uh you know within a system at the institution uh or 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 at a you know at a core system banking system that was running in a service bureau hosted somewhere on in a data center so examiners understand uh, data security and data security risk, right? So, so when you look at the regulations, uh, they've been written around um, around uh, risk as 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 they understand it, and and a lot of that risk, those risk definitions still apply, uh, whether it is uh, a new uh, you know new offering from a fintech. Uh, I think the the change that 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 probably still has to happen though is um, is um, while the risk definition may still apply. Uh, uh, certain new technologies uh, and certain new ways of doing things have redefined how to assess that risk. For example, uh, you know, uh, 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 one that you see a lot uh, is is where is your data residing? Uh, is it residing in your um, in your uh, in, in in on a server in your IT closet, or is it in, in the in the at the branch, or is it sitting at some data center that the core banking system is uh, running at? Or is it sitting in you know uh, a public cloud-based system like Amazon Web Services or or Google Cloud, and uh, uh, as soon as that data leaves the financial institution, there is an uh, there is a there's a perception of increased risk because it has now left the the building, and I think mm-hmm. uh, you know a lot of education has to happen there because you know if you if people have a strong understanding of how the internet works and 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 and, it's, and that i know that sounds very basic but in the end it's a, it's a, it's a it's a connected set of systems that are connected to each other so when you have that server sitting in your it closet at the branch but it is connected to the internet for maybe sending out uh, uh or maybe sending out data to an online banking system or 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 some partner that is uh, you know what what we would consider a traditional partner but as soon as that thing is connected to the internet it almost has the same level of risk that something would have at a at a co-located data center, and so then the focus becomes not so much about where the data is sitting, but about what are you doing to protect your applications that are managing that data, 
And uh, that, mm. this, is, this is an area where, you know, it's the difference between security off the cloud versus security in the cloud and the cloud being used as a term to describe infrastructure. Uh, you, mm-hmm. know, you, you can secure your infrastructure one way. You can, you know, you can put a, uh, a camera, a, a extra deadbolt uh, and, and, and security system in, in your IT closet in your branch. That's securing the infrastructure. But then you could have a very insecure application sitting on that server, which is not doing any encryption or any of that. And it's completely exposing your data to the internet because it is connected to the internet. And so therefore you haven't achieved much just because that server was sitting in your IT closet. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, at the same time, uh, you know, you could have an extremely secure uh, server sitting in a data center that is managed by, let's say, Amazon or, or Microsoft, where they're investing billions of dollars around security, a lot more than any single financial institution is investing in their IT security, uh, uh, or for that matter, most vendors are investing in their IT security, and, and they've secured the infrastructure. And then that application that's running on that infrastructure is is totally the responsibility of either the vendor you work with, uh, and this is where you spend most of your time on due diligence and, and on, on, on mm-hmm. compliance, or it's your responsibility if you're the financial institution that's putting it out there. So, uh, so I think I think that understanding is 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 slowly uh, uh, you know getting there, uh, both with community financial institutions, uh, leaders in community financial institutions, and also uh, also examiners. But overall, I think you know we sometimes assume that a whole new set of risks have opened up. I think the risk categories are still the same. What has changed is to how do you assess those risks based on new capabilities that technology has enabled? Yeah, well, that sounds like that would be, I mean, if, it, if I were at an institution, I would that would be a little bit of a relief. Like, okay, we can use roughly the same mental frameworks that we have for risk and these other things, and, and they can be reasonably applied to, you know, whatever this cutting edge thing is. Right. Um, would you be able to speak real quickly on maybe, I don't know, three things or so that you think make a good partner and, and how FIs can optimize those relationships with, you know, trustworthy partners? Uh, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, if, if someone shows you a lot of technology slides and tells you about how good the technology is, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and just does that, run, right? But the three things I'd like to kind of, kind of focus on uh, when you think about a partner, especially in this space, uh, in, a, in an industry that's regulated, uh, in an industry that is a high stakes industry where it's people's money we're talking about. I, th- I think number one, I, you know, you really need to look at a partner who understands your business. And by that, I mean not uh, the problems you're trying to solve, but really what makes you tick. And I think uh, uh, that is, uh, it's more than just technology. It's, re- it's really someone who's, you know, who uh, has worked uh, with m- many institutions, who has been around, who has seen indus- the industry evolve, uh, so, so understanding the business so that when there is something that works great, that's fantastic. Everybody can celebrate. But when something is not working well and changes have to be made, the partner can work with you in a symbiotic way to actually make those changes because they really understand the, the business, uh, uh, you know, if not as well as you, you know, pretty close to what, what your understanding. And so, so I think that is super important to understand what is the DNA of the company in terms of their presence in that industry and their, their knowledge of that industry. I think the second thing I would like to kind of really uh, jump into is is something that you just cannot ignore, which is um, uh, is how seriously does does that in, does that uh, partner uh, take security? Uh, you know, uh, uh, if they have a great understanding of your industry, but are basically the wild wild west when it comes to how their software is built and and run, well, that doesn't help because in the end, 
uh, you as as a leader at a community financial institution are, are responsible uh, for for your customers and and their safety and and, and so so really you know digging into uh, what security posture does that vendor take or that partner take uh, what are they doing how are they evolving as new security threats and and uh, challenges are, are are evolving in in the industry. Um, and I think finally, uh, you know, looking for a partner who uh, is is really trying to, and this is where it's. I think this is purpose. This is a you know my third point is very specific to community financial institutions when they look at partners. Is someone who can bring scale, right? Um, mm. it, it is no good if 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 a if a vendor comes with something that is great, fantastic technology, but leans on you for uh, you know, hey, give me a whole lot of data which you may not have, you may have only 10,000 account holders, well, that may not be enough for, for some analysis that has to be done to give you an effective outcome from this great technology they have. Uh, or, or for that matter, you know, they give you the technology, give you the technology, but they can't bring anything to bear in terms of knowledge that has been built through just scaling their, their capabilities uh, across other similar uh, institutions. And so scale is super important, bringing that scale to bear for you, uh, the, the community financial institution, so that you really have those tools and capabilities that only the big institutions have, and 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 so so uh, um, so I think kind of to kind of summarize, uh, you know, understanding your business, your industry, uh, your pain points, uh, you're really kind of focusing uh, on security and 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 making sure that your assets are always uh, secure and safe, and your reputation is always maintained, and finally bring that scale that you just don't have uh, by virtue of your size. That scale that is is manifests itself both in terms of, you know, data and technology capabilities. You know, the things that would work for institution that had a million accounts work for you just as well. Uh, and and then also just that scale that you know that that knowledge and that learning that comes with that scale, which is only available to the big institutions. Uh, so I think those would be the three things I would look for in a in a in a in a partner uh, for community financial institutions. That's I love awesome. that you, Thank you got it down into three you know, sustained <laughs> things, but I'm wondering right. if that was impressive. Like common missteps that an organization who is maturing into this predictive data point of view can fall into, like um, the missteps might be like kind of a, a data as a product pothole, like right. are there missteps that can be avoided? Yeah, I think you know, like like uh, all good products, they evolve, and I think one of the one of the missteps that you can fall into is you 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 start you start setting up efforts to answer one-off questions, right? So so you, you say, okay, well that's great. I have my historical reporting. I think I know what happened in the past. I've done some ad hoc analysis to know why it happened, and now I want to know what's going to happen next. And guess what? I, I I found out based on some analysis I did, and I stop at that point. Uh, well, the problem with that approach is. If we don't continuously you know, keep building on that, uh, trying to find extensions, trying to find other use cases that may be connected, is every time you stop, you know, if you don't have a full-blown data infrastructure in place and, and either in-house or working with a partner, you kind of start off from scratch a little bit every time and, and there's a cost associated with that. So I think one thing that can be done is, is just like any good product, you evolve, uh, you, you have a roadmap, you have a a list of questions, and I say questions, and I, I don't, I don't mean to imply that it's just a list of questions that you want answers for, uh, but also just you know you have a list of questions, but also a list of capabilities you want to enable for your frontline staff, for your uh, the way your products are marketed, 
you know, really build a, a backlog, a, a roadmap of things you want to do uh, around your data asset and, 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 and work towards that versus trying to do these one-off projects. Uh, and, and in many cases, you may need to work with a partner to do it. You may not have the resources to keep that, that you know, that, that train going, but, uh, but, you know, keeping that going is very important because only when you keep uh, uh, evolving with your data needs and asks, uh, do you really start uh, realizing what you have and don't have and then start trying to get those capabilities. You may soon find out that I can't answer half my questions because I'm just missing some data that I'll never have. It'll never be organic. And therefore, should I make the investment to go and get that data or should I work with a partner who has that data? And those are all, you know, those things don't typically come out if, if you don't really think ahead in terms of a roadmap. It sounds like that's like an avenue to start creating your formal data strategy that you mentioned in the beginning. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, again, if you take a very uh, historical reporting ad hoc centric view of the world and you will start doing one question at a time and you try to answer one thing, maybe two uh, but if you don't take this holistic approach of, of really creating a, a roadmap, sitting with your business leaders, like I said, technology second, not technology first, sitting with the business leaders who actually know the business, uh, asking them, hey, where do we think our institution's going? Uh, what are our challenges? What's happening in the, in the industry? What are the macro risks that we have? You know, if, you know, just to be specific, let's say it's a rising rate environment or a dropping rate environment. What do we need? Loans, don't need loans, need more deposits. What do we think is going to happen? What are the questions we need to answer? Those are all the kinds of things that if you start defining a roadmap uh, preemptively, uh, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but you can definitely, uh, you know, define some, uh, you know, different parts, part A, part B. If this happens, then we'll look at this. If you start defining those and you start really start thinking about the kinds of data elements you need, data assets you need, what kind of, you know, maybe master data management you need, which partners you need to work with. Uh, and if you cannot answer those questions about which partners we should work with, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the beauty of community financial institutions is, you know, by definition, it's in the name. They, they, they are not just uh, in the financial institutions serving our community, but they also are a community of financial institutions. And so they can they can talk to other financial institutions uh, uh, who may have had some more success. There's a, there, there's a wealth of of knowledge available. Uh, there's a lot of strength in the numbers if you if you if you if you bond to, you know if you band together and, and think about some of this. That is a great. That was a really great point. It sounds like, I mean, if, for me, if I'm, I'm summarizing a little bit of what I heard, it sounds like th there's a lot that you can do, but the really the place you have to start is by forming really good questions, um, right. thinking hard about those questions. And, and then you move forward into some of these other, you know, the, the heavy lifting, right? right. Um, and and this, yeah. And, no, go ahead. and sometimes I feel like, you know, sometimes your your partners and your vendors may actually trigger some questions in your mind that you just weren't thinking about. And I think that's, that is another way of, you know, when I said, you know, one of the things you should look for in a vendor or a partner is, is just the knowledge of the industry. Uh, that's the value that they bring, right? When they understand your industry, they may trigger, they may ask you some things that may then have you start thinking about, well, we should really get an answer to that because regardless of whether we work with this partner or, you know, what our relationship with this partner is, we really need to get that answer for, you know, for our own business. And so, uh, there are many sources to those questions. They don't have to all be organic uh, questions that come in from internal teams. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, uh, working with the com other community financial institutions, working with vendors who do this uh, is, a, is a great source of that. Oh, wow. Man, Pradeep, thank you so much for 
taking the time to sit with us and talk about this. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it. I mean, I, I think that some people might have a tendency, their eyes glaze over a little when we start talking about data, but uh, I found this to be a really interesting discussion. I think we covered some really valuable stuff uh, and I'm excited to get it out there and, and let people hear what we have to say about this because I think it will help. Uh, absolutely. I, I, it was a pleasure. And I, I'm, I'm passionate about, uh, uh, but just the value of data right? and what it can do for organizations across industries. You know, we're talking about financial services here, but just across industries, there's enough proof that data is an asset that you really need to take seriously and and, and kind of productize and weaponize. And, I, and so I'm, you know, very passionate about this topic. So it was a real pleasure talking about it. And the end that you're not alone in doing so, that, you know, the rising tide is being together and having great partners and having other people to learn from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I don't think this is going to be the last time we talk about this on the podcast. Um, I certainly hope not. And uh, this has just been great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Now, at the beginning of the show, I compared the fear of a bad haircut to the fear of having a bad vendor partnership. They're similar in theory, and in practice, they are worlds apart. The burden of running a community financial institution and keeping your members or investors and customers happy is huge. But here's my point in a nutshell. Don't be like me and hold too tightly to a mediocre status quo. Most likely, you've already sensed a growing need to explore new partnerships and pivot your institution toward a future that barely resembles the last 50 or even 20 years of banking. It can feel like a bigger jump than it is. And the truth is that other institutions like yours are making that leap. It's not only possible, but I dare say you might even enjoy it. Like the confidence boost you feel after getting a stellar haircut. Thanks for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving us a review. This helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at kasasa.com. Thank you.